All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the uh, book of Philippians. That's where we are going to be this morning. Uh, we are in part two, or actually part four by now, uh, in a series on the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. Uh, if you don't have your own Bible, there should be Bibles in the pew back in front of you, and you can turn to page 951. should land you in the book of Philippians. If you don't have access to either of those, I believe our text should be up on the screen. So uh, part four of our sermon series called uh, The Fight for Joy. And we've been working through this wonderful little book and learning from Paul the secret to fighting for our joy as Christians. I think we all want more joy in our life. And Paul's going to share with us today another way to fight for joy. Last, last week we saw joy in the gospel. And we saw that one way that we can fight for joy as Christians is to have gospel-centered uh, fellowship and relationship with other people, and that we can have joy in sharing the gospel and in loving the gospel. Today, we're going to, going to find out that we can also have joy in living for Jesus. So I trust that you're there. Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be, and we're going to start in verse 18. And uh, we hope to make our way through the rest of the chapter. Lord willing, we'll get there. So uh, joy in living for Christ. Let's go ahead and pray one more time, and we'll jump right into this most excellent and helpful of sermon text. So let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for all of these people who are here. Thank you that they've come to humble themselves and to sit under your word and to learn how to fight for joy. Father, we all want to live more joyfully. We all want to be people that are known for exuberant joy and for joy in the midst of any circumstance. And yet we confess to you and I confess to you that oftentimes when our circumstances are poor, we lack joy uh, because we're not finding it in the right place. And yet here today we look at this man who is under house arrest. He's in prison. He's awaiting the trial literally for his life, and he writes a little letter that's full of joy. And he writes this little letter exuding joy and teaching us Christians who are under far less hard circumstances how to live with joy. And so help us, help us learn what it is that you have for us today. In particular, help us to see that there is great joy for those of us who have been born again, who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, who have been made new people, that there is great joy in living for our Savior, that there is great joy in living our lives completely and utterly for his purposes, for his sake, for his glory, and for our good. There is great joy there, so help us, we pray, to not only hear your word, but to be doers of it, and we ask it in the name of Jesus, the one whom living for brings us joy, and God's people said, amen. Amen. So I ran across, uh, across a, quote, a quotation uh, in my studies this week, and I want to share with you, because I think it uh, has some real insight into the sermon uh, that we're going to hear today, into the text, this little portion of the letter that Paul writes. I think it gives great insight into what we're going to hear today. And the little quote says this, When a person faces the real prospect of, prospect of dying soon, when a person faces the real prospects of dying soon, their real values become obvious. That is, when a person is close to death, when a person may truly be dying soon, their real values, that what they really care about, what really matters to them, has a way of 
becoming obvious. So I thought, is this true? It strikes me as being true. And so I went back and I wanted to find out what some famous or maybe infamous, depending upon your perspective, people said close to their deaths. Was this true that when people face the prospect of dying, that what they really value, what really matters to them just comes spewing out? And I found that this was true. I just would like to share with you four quotations. You can call them deathbed quotations, maybe famous last words, what people had to say when it was near the end to them. And I think what we'll find out is that this man who gave us this quote is, is right, that when we face the real prospects of dying, what we really value just comes flowing out. And so I'll share the first one with you, and it's by, by Buddha. Of course, I think we all know who Buddha was. And this is what he has to say on his deathbed. He said this, work hard to gain your own salvation. So the moment that he's about to pass into eternity and leave this world, what is on his lips? He says, work hard. I think he's telling everyone, work hard to gain your own salvation. So let me ask you, what do those words reveal about what Buddha valued? Well, I would summarize it in this way. I think he valued morality. He valued being good. He valued working to then be right with God. What about Presley? I think we all know who the king is. What did he have to say towards the end of his death? This one I find most interesting. On his deathbed, towards the end of his life, he said this. He says, I hope I haven't bored you. I hope I haven't bored you. So what do you think that reveals about what Elvis Presley valued? What did he value in life? I hope I just haven't bored you. Well, I would suggest to you, it it may suggest that it means that he valued entertainment. He valued entertaining. He didn't want his life to be boring. He didn't want his songs and his moves to be boring to other people. Third example is a man by the name of Flynn Errol. He's a 20th century actor. Uh, He's before my time. Some of you may know who I'm talking about, but I did my research. And he was known for being in big Hollywood films. He was known for being the romantic on the screen. And so he was a bit of a ladies' man on the screen. But when you do some reading about his life off the screen, what you find out is that it was very similar to his life on the screen. He was hedonistic. He was what we would call a ladies' man. He lived a womanizing lifestyle, and he was known for his promiscuity. And so what did this man have to say on his deathbed? Well, he said this. I've had a heck of a lot of fun, and I have enjoyed every minute of it. And then he died soon thereafter. So what does that mean that he valued? Revealed was most important to him. Well, I would argue that knowing what we know about his lifestyle and knowing what we know about his last words, he valued pleasure. He valued pleasure above all else and pursuing it at anybody's expense. Well, one more example. What about Pavarotti? Do you know who Pavarotti is? He is the famous Italian opera singer. Now, I'm not much for opera, uh, but I did a little research, and this is what uh, probably one of the most well-known opera singers in history had to say towards the end of his life. He said, I believe that a life lived for music is an existence spent wonderfully, and this is what I have dedicated my life to. Well, of course, this means that he valued above all things music. He valued music. 
And so we've seen these four examples of, I think, demonstrating this quotation being true. When a person faces death, what is most significant to them becomes obvious. So let me ask you a question. When a Christian is close to death, when a Christian who's been born again and who has lived their life for Jesus Christ, when they either are close to their death or maybe they're facing the prospect of imminent death, like our man Paul is as he writes this little letter, the letter of Philippians to those Christians in the city of Philippi. Remember, he's there in house arrest. He's awaiting his appeal to Caesar, who was the king of the world and whose fate was in his hands. And he could say, thumbs up, you live, or thumbs down, you die. He literally may be on death's doorway. So what does a Christian say? What should a Christian say when they are close to death? What does it reveal about what they value most? What would it reveal about what you value most? Well, I think today as we hear Paul's words, as he faces death, I think it will reveal what he values the most. And it's not just for Paul, not just for this super apostle, but no, he, he says so much in his letter that everything he writes to this little church way back then into this little church for us today. Everything he writes is by way of example. He's not just speaking. He wants us to learn something from him. And so what can we learn about what Paul and what we should value most in light of our imminent, because all of us will die one day, death? I think it reveals to us another source of joy. And that source of joy is joy in living for Jesus. So uh, a, couple, a couple sections. If you like taking notes, if you want to know where we're going, this is where we're going. In verses 18 through 26, what we see is joy in living for Jesus in the life of Paul. So Paul's going to talk about, in this dire circumstance, how he has joy and how he lives for Jesus regardless. So we're going to see joy in living for Jesus for Paul, and then we're going to move on to verses 27 through 30 and see joy for living, joy in living for Jesus for the Philippians. So he's going to move from talking about his joy in living for Jesus, and then he's going to move on to talk about how they can live for Jesus too and find great joy in that. So let's begin in verses 18. Really the middle of verse 18 is where this section begins. Joy in living for Jesus in the life of Paul. Verses 18 through 26. Hear the words of a man facing death, and this is what he says, revealing what he really values. Starting in verse 18. The middle of 18. Yes, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Now notice what he just said in verse 18. He's talking about people preaching the gospel, and he said, I don't care what their motives are. I'm going to rejoice if they're sharing the gospel. So he's on this theme of rejoice, and he moves on to to share another thing that gives him joy. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers... And God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me, will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that in no way I will be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, notice the words, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. He continues, For if I am to go on 
living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and what? Joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So here in this little section, Paul shows us how he has joy in living for Jesus. How is it, how is it that a man uh, chained up to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week, facing imminent or possible death, how can he find joy? How can he find joy in such a circumstance? Well, he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us how he can find joy sitting in a prison cell or really house arrest and enchained and not certain about the future. He's going to tell us that he finds joy because he lives for Christ regardless of any circumstance. So first of all, I want to just summarize what he said. He tells us it's because he knows that this circumstance will turn out for his deliverance. So what does that mean? He's confident that, he, that he's going to be delivered. Well, he kind of fleshes that out. It has a a bit of a double meaning. He says, I'm confident I'm going to be delivered, and it gives me joy regardless of whether I live or whether I die. So he says, listen, I'm going to be delivered either way. I'm going to live, and they're going to let me go, and I'm going to continue to minister, or I'm going to die, and I'm going to see Jesus. But either way, I'm going to be delivered. He says, I'm going to, without shame, speak the gospel of Christ before Caesar. I'm going to stand before the most powerful man in the world. I'm going to tell him that he's not the king, that Jesus is the king, and that he needs to repent and trust in him. He's going to do that boldly. He's not going to be ashamed of the gospel. And if Caesar says, great, be free, go, you've not broken any of our laws, then he's going to continue to live. And did you notice how he's going to live? What is he going to do? Oh man, I made it out of that one. Let's go live the easy life. I'm going to go take a vacation. That's not what he said. He said, if, I, if I'm freed, then it means more ministry. It means I can then pour into you Philippians and any other church that I may start. It means fruitful labor. It means living for Christ. If I'm freed, and that gives him much joy. It gives him much joy. So that's option one. And if that happens, well, then he's going to be delivered. That's kind of what we think he means, right? We think he means, well, I'm just going to, be get, I'm going to get out of jail. I'm going to be delivered. But there's another way in which he can be delivered. Did you catch it? There's another means in which he will have joy if he's delivered, and that's through death. Now, we don't typically think of dying as being set free, right? We don't typically think of our death as being delivered, and yet Paul radically says, if I die, deliverance. (laughs) Deliverance. I'm going to be set free. Well, what does he mean? What does he mean by that? Well, he tells us. He says, uh, I'm going to speak boldly to Caesar, and if he gives me the thumbs up, I'm going to go preach. But if he gives me the thumbs down, then I'm going to be free because to live is Christ and to die is what, church? Gain. To die is gain. And then he explains that. He says, to die is gain because then if I die, I will be with Christ. And that is, in Greek, very much better. It's a a double emphasis. That is, it's much, 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 much better. (laughs) I would rather die and be with Jesus 
then stay on and live for Jesus here. But then we, we get this sense that there's kind of a dilemma, right? He says, I don't know which I would choose. It's like he's moving inward to his thoughts and saying, if I had a choice whether to live and to continue to preach and to serve and to live for Jesus on the one hand, or if I had the option to then go and to die and to be with Jesus on the other hand, which would I choose? Church, we have to ask ourselves, which would we choose? Which would you choose? Which would I choose? He says both of these are good options. It's like a a Lamborghini or a Ferrari. Yes, please, they're both good. He says they're both good and I'm hard-pressed. I don't know which one I would rather choose. And then he, he tells us, well, if I die, I'll be with Jesus and that'll be good. But if I don't, then I'll continue in ministry. And then he kind of comes, you can almost see him as he's riding uh, with his uh, chain in hand and he's riding and he says, you know, I, th- I think God's going to allow me to live. He just has come to this realization. He doesn't know it, but he thinks, I think, I think God's going to allow me to, to live. And he's being, he's setting an example here. Because he wants them to know in, in the next week he's going to talk about selflessness and how that is a means to joy. And he says, well, it would be better for me to be with Jesus, but since it's better for you, I'm, I'm convinced that I'm going to live. And so he's setting this example and he says, I don't know what's going to happen, but I think I'm going to live. And then notice, notice what he says. He says, I think it's better that I'm going to live. And uh, see if I can find my place here in verse Oh, 25, continued, convinced of this, I know that I will remain. Why? He wants not only to have joy himself in living for Jesus, but he wants to help them and us have joy in living for Jesus. Convinced of this, I'm going to continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Progress and joy. So what he's saying is, is that as I progress in my faith and live for Jesus, I have joy. And what I'm going to do, I think, is I'm going to live and I'm going to help you continue to progress in your relationship with Jesus and therefore have what, church? Joy, right? Joy. So that's what he says. Clearly, living for Jesus gave Paul, and it should and can, give us joy. But what is the essence of living for Jesus? It's found in a little phrase in verse 21. So if you have your Bibles open, turn to verse 21 and look at this little phrase. I think it's Paul's life motto. If he had a bumper sticker, I think it would be on his car. This is what he would say. It's his, it's his life motto. And he says this, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what does it mean when he says to live is Christ? I think I have an image, guys, and if I do, go ahead and put it up. Uh, there is an image of a t-shirt, possibly. Am I right? No? Okay, no worries. I'll, you, you can imagine it. There is a t-shirt that I had growing up, and uh, I liked a variety of sports, but one of the things, one of the sports I most enjoyed was tennis. Um, before you knock it, hey, it is an athlete's sport, okay? Let me just tell you that. Tennis, and Wimbledon is going on now, so it's exciting. Anyway, I, I, I enjoyed tennis along with a variety of other sports, and I had this t-shirt, and I don't know if you guys or your kids had these kind of t-shirts. They were popular for a while, but they would have a, a little saying, a little phrase, and mine said, tennis is life. Now, yours may have said, basketball is life, because that's what is big here in Illinois. In Texas, mostly it says, football is life, because that's big in Texas, and we all know that it's true. But um, neither here nor there. But I like tennis. Tennis is life, right? 
So what did I mean when I wore this t-shirt, Tennis is Life? What do you know about me? You know I love tennis. You know I spend my time doing tennis. And you know, and it, oh, and then it says, and the rest is just details. The rest is just details. So what I mean by that, and when you saw that kind of a t-shirt, you know that I filtered my life around the game of tennis. So it helped me decide what I was going to do, what I was not going to do, where I'd spend my time, where I'd spend my money, where my emotions were, where my, my love, where my affection would most be. So life was tennis. That's what I pursued. So what does Paul say? What, is, what does he mean when he says life to live is Christ? It means similarly that Christ was his goal, his love, his passion, his pursuit, his all-encompassing purpose. Dr. Constable, I think, says it well. Jesus Christ was the sun around which Paul's life orbited. You get that picture? He was the center of his life. And so we have to ask ourselves a really hard question. If you've not learned yet, what you'll find out is that Philippians is, in a sense, an agonizing book. It's challenging because we hear Paul say these things, and we have to ask, can I say that? I mean, can I really say that and mean it? Sometimes, not all the time, just sometimes. Can I say, to live is Christ? Believer, can you, can you say that? to live is Christ, that your life is so wrapped up around knowing and pursuing and following and sharing Jesus that you could, you could have a t-shirt and it would say, Jesus is life, and the rest is just details? Is that true of me and you? Or would it read something else? Here's one way we can know. How, would, how do we fill in this blank if we're honest? To live is blank. What would you say? Really, what would we say? To live is pleasure, and we pursue it in a variety of ways. To live is food, to live is family, to live is our spouse or our relationship, our marriage. To live is popularity, because that's what we value. To live is sports, to live is our kids. That's what life is about, it's our kids. No, to live is work. For most of us men, that can be the case. To live is financial security because that's what we most value is being secure and safe, we think. To live is success. When I am marked as a success in life, then I will be happy. But here's the truth, folks. If the answer to that fill in the blank, for to me to live is blank, if it's not Christ, then it changes the end of it. Because how did Paul say? To live is Christ, but to die is gain. But then the flip side is true. If to live is pleasure, then to die is what? Loss. Right? To live is family, then to die is what? Loss. To live is my career, but then to die is what? Loss. Do you understand that? It blows my mind because you know what? If I say to live is, my fa- to live is ministry, to live is ministry. I love this church. I love you people. I love being here. I love what I do, and I can make my life wrapped up in that. And so sometimes for me, I, to, live, to live is ministry. That can be in there. But what happens if uh, I get in a car wreck on the way home, and I've got like two hours to live? How will I view my death? Will I view it as Oh, all these years of ministry that I, I'm going to lose. Oh, I'm not going to get to preach anymore. Oh, I'm not going to get to pastor anymore. Or what if it's family? 
What if it's to, li- to live as family? Oh, I'm not going to get to see my kids grow up. I'm not going to get to see them get married. I'm not going to see my grandkids. And those are all okay things to lament, not doing when we face death. But church, church, if in our heart of hearts, when we face death and we don't think, Christ, <laughs> that's okay, Christ. Yes, I'm going to miss this, but Christ. Then what does that mean? Then we get the first part mixed up. To live is something else, and to die is then seen as loss. Uh, somewhat of a funny story, at least I think it's funny, and we'll see if you do too. I was talking with Shelly about this a few, a few weeks back. About details of the sermon, and she shared with me, I'll make it brief, that she was having a Bible study with some of her girls in college, just single, single girls, and they're all faithful, good Christian girls. Uh, you know, they're all, have, have not uh, been intimate talking, and uh, I think they're playing a game, and it's one of those games, they ask a question, you respond. And the question is, what, 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 what's, what's the first thing you would do if the end of the world were coming in like three hours? And you know what they all said? I think you probably know what they all said. They said, I'd like to lose my virginity, okay? <laughs> and we laughed about it, and we're like, yeah, we'd say that too, you know, whatever. We'd laugh about it. Um, but then we kind of actually, we thought about it, and I'm like, okay, that, I mean, that's good for a laugh, and to some degree, that's okay to lament, but, but Really? Like, that's what, really? You'd really be concerned about that? When the prospect of Christ is forefront? When the prospect of being with Christ is imminent? And so church, the essence of living for Jesus is found in how we fill this out. To live is Christ and to die is gain, or to live is something else, and then to die ultimately is loss. And so Christian, do you lack joy? Do you lack joy? I like joy sometimes, lots of times, more than I want to admit. When I lack joy, it's oftentimes because I'm not living for Christ. My heart is not on Christ. To live is something else in that moment. I want to share a quick video with you. It's about five minutes long. It's the story of a woman who has battled uh, with, uh, with cancer. And we don't, we don't know what her end will be. But listen to her words. And hear what Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, towards the end of the video. Let's watch this together. My name is Jennifer McManus. I'm a wife, a mom, a foster parent, and a really bad cook. On April 16th, 2011, I was diagnosed with a malignant melanoma tumor. May 4th, 2011, I had my first surgery to remove the tumor to see if the cancer had spread. That surgery was very successful. Our surgeon made us feel like this was the end of our cancer journey and that we would hear back from him two to three days if the cancer had indeed spread. Two to three days came and went, and we still did not hear. And I was concerned at that point. I just had this pit in my stomach that it indeed had spread. I remember the night when he called. I remember his voice trembling when he told me that the cancer had spread. When he hung up, I remember thinking one thing and it was Jesus. At that moment, the only thing that brought me comfort was knowing that my Savior 
felt this. My husband had been so strong and was so sure that this cancer journey was over. When I walked downstairs to tell him, that was the hardest moment. Just tears streaming down my face and I couldn't even get out words. I I just spluttered the words, more cancer, and just fell into his arms. And he wiped my tears and he prayed. And in a moment when I felt the ground falling away from my feet, I needed someone who could hold me up and point me back to the truth of the gospel. And that's exactly what he did. He writes me letters every day. And they're letters that make me laugh. They're letters that make me cry. And they're letters that speak the word into my life daily. I could not do this without him. Cancer consumes my thoughts. When I wake up in the morning, my first thought is cancer. When I go to bed at night, my last thought is cancer. My body is is reacting as well as anybody would when you pump poison into it. I'm sick. I'm not strong. I'm weak. I'm on so many medications that I have so many side effects. I'm now at the point where I'm taking medications to help the side effects of the medications that I'm taking for the chemotherapy. Every time I go to a new doctor's office, it feels like I'm moving closer and closer to death. The people get sicker and sicker and sicker each appointment. And that is scary because I wonder, is that me? Am I that sick? Or am I going to get that sick? I was afraid of death. And I would be a liar to say I'm still not. But I'm not scared of dying. I'm scared of missing out on life. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to grow old with my husband. And I want to see so many more people come to the Lord. But I trust that God's plan is perfect. Cancer has made death more real. And made the gospel more real. Because I know where I'm going when I die. But so many people who I love don't. I've wasted so many moments that I could have shared the truth of the gospel and I didn't because I was scared. I don't have time to be scared anymore. I find hope in the promise of a life lived forever. I'm joyful because of the gospel and because of the story God is telling through my life. I'm excited that I get to point people to Jesus. And I'm excited that at the end of the day, whether I live or die, God wins. Whether we live or whether we die, 
God wins as Christians. So, we've seen joy in living for Jesus, for Paul. Let's quickly look now into verses 27 through 30. And what we'll see is that Paul not only talks about his joy in living for Jesus, but he wants to work with other Christians to help them have joy in living for Jesus too. And so he's going to share in verses 27 through 30 exactly how they can do that. So let's read verse 27 first. He says this, transitioning into how they can have progress and joy in the gospel. Whatever happens, he's talking to them now, whatever happens, that is whether I come to you or not, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Literally, it reads, conduct yourselves, live as citizens, uh, live as citizens worthy of the gospel. That's significant, because what is a citizen? A citizen has rights and responsibilities. As an American citizen, we have rights and responsibilities. Later, he's going to tell them that they are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, they lived in it at a time where they were under Roman rule, but they were Roman citizens, which was a big deal back then. If you were a Roman citizen, you had all sorts of privileges and responsibilities. And he says, listen, you take great pride in the fact that you're a Roman citizen, like we take great pride in the fact that we may be an American citizen. But listen, being a citizen comes with not only rights, but it comes with responsibilities. Live out those responsibilities, and he's going to tell them how to do it in a couple specific ways to their church. He's going to say, first, live out your responsibility by finding joy in unity, and then live out that responsibility by finding joy in suffering for Jesus. Notice what he says in the rest of this section. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you're standing firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Notice the emphasis on one. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has, listen here, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since... You are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So here's what he says. He's going to say in two specific ways, if you want to have joy as a Christian, then pursue unity in the church and pursue suffering well for the sake of Jesus. Unity in the church, suffering well for the sake of Jesus. We're going to talk about both of those in upcoming sermons. So we'll leave those topics for later. But what I want you to see is that he's fleshing out for them in some specific ways how they can have joy in living for Jesus. That's the progress and the joy that he wants them to have. Living in unity, suffering for Jesus, right? So we're going to close, uh, we're going to close out this way. We're going to close out our, our, our time together with a bit of a response time. We don't typically do this, but I want to do that today because God may be stirring in your heart. God may be working on you, and I want to give you a time to respond. And so this is what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to watch another short clip. It's about two minutes of another woman who had great joy in living for Jesus in spite of her great suffering just like Paul, just like the Philippians. And then we're going to sing a closing song, the song that she penned. I think it'll be a song that most of you know. And so we'll watch this clip. Our team will come up and we'll sing this closing song together. And here's what I want you to do. We're going to play and we're going to give you time. If you want to stand and sing, then stand and sing. If you want to sit and pray, then sit and pray. If you're here this morning and you would say, this is utter nonsense. I, if I were to die, it would not be it would not be gain. It would be lost. 
because I'm fearful and I don't know what death holds for me. And if that's you, then you can have the certainty like Paul had and like those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, the certainty that we can have that to live is Christ and that means because we've lived for Christ all our life when we die, we get to see him, then it's nothing but gain. It's nothing but gain. And if you've never trusted Jesus, if you've never trusted in what he has done, his perfect obedience in place of your imperfect obedience, his death on the cross bearing the Father's weight, the Father's wrath against my sin and against your sin that you deserve, that I deserve, he bore that for us and offers us in place his perfect righteousness, his right standing with a holy God and a slew of other things, including having a a heart that is, is what the Bible calls regenerate, born again, different, new life, so that then you can truly live life and say to live is Christ, and then you will know that to die is gain. So if you've not done that, you can do that right there in your seat as we sing a song. You trust in Christ, and you ask him to come into your life. So let's watch this video, and then we'll sing our song, and then we'll be done. Carefree Charlotte, that's what everyone knew her by. For 30 years, she was the most cheerful, happy woman you'd ever know. She even made part of her living as a comedy writer. But shortly after her 30th birthday, that all changed forever. What Charlotte didn't know at the time is that she would spend the next 50 years of her life in bed. The doctors didn't know what was wrong with her. Every hour was filled with pain. She was overpowered with weakness, and there was not one day that she lived without exhaustion. She hated God and cursed Him for making her a prisoner to her own bed. One evening, a few years after she got sick, her father invited a minister over to their house to cheer her up. He talked of peace and joy on and on. Finally, she couldn't take it anymore. She exploded with anger and lashed out at the minister, her family, and God. He immediately saw right through Charlotte and said, you have become tired of yourself. You're holding on to hate and anger, becoming sour and bitter and resentful. She was immediately broken and convicted by his words. Charlotte begged to know this peace and joy he spoke of. The evangelist smiled and said, Come as you are to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Bring your fears, hate, temper, and pride, and He will give you love and peace in their place. That was the day Charlotte claimed to go from utter despair to saving faith in Jesus Christ. She never recovered her health and spent the rest of her life confined to her home in bed. But Charlotte's heart was transformed, enabling her to find true joy and praise her Creator despite her physical suffering. Carefree Charlotte began writing hymns about this wonderful love she came to know. She wrote over 150 songs later published as The Invalid's Hymn Book. Charlotte is best known as the writer of Just As I Am, which she called her spiritual autobiography. Little did she know, as she told her story and song, that it would become the theme song for Billy Graham and be used to call millions to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. 
Just as I am is a declaration of joy in the midst of suffering, confidence in the midst of doubt, and salvation just as we are. As our worship team comes, I invite you to sit if you want. You can stand if you want. But as the video talked about coming just as we are, I invite you to do that today. If you have not professed faith in Jesus, then you come to Jesus just as you are, and you let him change you. And maybe you come as a Christian, and you would say, man, I live for all sorts of things, but not for Christ. And you come to him right now and tell him that you want to live for him so that death is gain. Let's sing this song together. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed. See you next week.